Well, uh, good afternoon and uh, welcome back to this uh, Belfour Project Day Conference on uh, Jerusalem uh, from past division to shared future question mark. Uh, can I remind you uh, that if you have questions, we don't have time to uh, deal with them in each of the sessions, but if you type them into the chat box, uh, we'll hope to pick up at least some of them in the session at 5.20. Now, the, the Belfort Project brings together people of uh, many different faiths and people of no faith, uh, but it's impossible to talk about Jerusalem without looking at the significance of religion. So that's the focus of this session, uh, religion and the holy sites. And uh, we've got a panel uh, representing three of the largest uh, faith communities, and I'll introduce them uh, when we have heard our keynote speaker. So let me introduce him straight away. Uh, Danny Seidemann moved to Jerusalem in 1973 and has been a member of the Israeli Bar Association since 1987. And since 1991, he has focused on the geopolitics of contemporary Jerusalem and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and he is very well known as the founder of the NGO Terrestrial Jerusalem. And he's led discussions on the future of Jerusalem uh, with Christian communities, uh, within the Arab world, and with the, the Jewish diaspora uh, in Europe and in North America. And if you heard uh, part of his contribution this morning, uh, I'm sure you're looking forward to what he's now got to say to us this afternoon. Uh, and just one other thing about him, in 2010, uh, the Queen made him an honorary member of the Order of the British Empire in recognition of his work in Jerusalem. So Danny, thank you for coming back this afternoon, joining us for this session. And could you now please give us your keynote introduction on religion and the holy sites? Thank you for your kind words and introduction. Uh, it, it's, it's a bit odd for me to be speaking uh, to this issue because I'm secular. I'm not an observant Jew. Um, but were I not to have an intimate familiarity with the faith dimension of Jerusalem, I wouldn't be able to do my job. Mm -hmm. um, the idea uh, that I'm going to describe to you was born at a specific moment during the negotiations around Camp David when there were discussions about dividing up the Temple Mount Haram al-Sharif as if it were a wedding cake, horizontally slashing, this would be Jewish, this would be Muslim. And it dawned on me, we're treating Jerusalem as if it's real estate. And Jerusalem is also real estate, but it's primarily not real estate. The old city of Jerusalem is one kilometer in size. And in the limited geographical space, um, you have the three mutually incompatible narratives 
of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. It's where the tectonic plates of the West and the Arab world and civilizations meet up in this limited space. Uh, and it struck me that failure to address the faith dimension of the conflict was a major methodological problem and one that was my problem as well. At about the same time, uh, we began to observe something else and uh, my good friend Salim Tamari alluded to it. Uh, Salim describes this about the ascendancy of Jerusalem. I would put it differently. Um, uh, Jerusalem um, is Jerusalem because of God, whether she exists or not. Uh, saying uh, keep religion out of Jerusalem is the equivalent of saying keep culture out of Florence and finance out of Manhattan. Uh, comes with the territory. The problem that we encountered was not so much the presence of faith. Faith is what makes Jerusalem but uh, those religious movements that weaponize religion, weaponize faith. And in a Jerusalem context, that comes down to very specific things. These are groups whose claims to the city are absolute, exclusionary, exclusive, and at times incendiary. I have no problem identifying among Jews, it is the um, Temple Mount movement aspiring to radically change the status quo or the biblically motivated settlers trying to transform Sarwan into a renewed biblical kingdom. Uh, among Christians, it's the end of days evangelicals um, for whom Jerusalem is an Armageddon playground. And there are various iterations of the brotherhood uh, who deny the legitimacy of Jewish and Christian attachments to the city. Uh, and these groups became more powerful uh, over the last 20 years and had a greater impact on policy. And, and I found myself uh, saying, wait a second, they're not becoming more powerful. They're the power because policy today in Washington is driven. Um, by the theology of end of days evangelicals, of Vice President Prince and Pompeo. Um, uh, and policy in Jerusalem is driven by the biblically motivated settlers and the messianically motivated Temple Mount movement. Um, this morphed into something that I call a frenzy of mutual denial where it's become socially unacceptable to speak respectfully about the equities of the other. Uh, you Jews were never here. You're usurpers. Uh, there never was a temple uh, or um, uh, the Muslim um, sanctification of Al-Aqsa is a modern construct uh, devised cleverly in order to abuse the Jews. Um, Mike Huckabee, prominent politician and theologian, you know, the, the, the Palestinian Muslims have no business being here. Um, I would like to show you one of the more benign manifestations of this. Diana, could you put the first slide up, please? 
Are you there, Diana? Okay, here it comes. comes. Okay, um, this is a tourist map that is no longer in use. I'm, I'm abusing it a bit. Um, we were able to shame the government of Israel into withdrawing this map. It was the map that you would have been given at Joppa Gate entering the old city about four or five years ago. Um, and it bears the logo of the Israeli Ministry of Tourism. Um, like most tourist maps, it's kind of kitschy. Um, uh, and there is a legend to the map on the side. And that legend uh, contains 57 sites, 52 of which are Jewish sites, four of which are Christian sites. There's one Muslim site, it's the Dome of the Rock, and on the, this official map of Israel, Al-Aqsa Mosque does not appear. And this, I'm not using this as an example of current Israeli policy, it is not. But it is a definite example of the zeitgeist. And um, allow me you know, to, to just give you another example from a week or two ago. The Jerusalem municipality um, put on its website um, a list of all of the synagogues in Jerusalem. And one of the members of city council said, you have to put the churches in the mosques as well. And the response of the municipality was to remove the synagogues because it was more offensive to have the mosques and the churches there than it was important to have the synagogues. Now, if it makes any difference, they were probably as upset um, uh, that there were reform synagogues uh, uh, to be listed as well. Um, so this remains e extremely uh, relevant. Um, uh, Diana, could you put the second slide on? Uh, th this morning, I, I spoke about um, what I consider to be the marginalization of the Muslim equities in Jerusalem uh, by the Trump plan. Um, and in the Trump plan, there is a list of Jerusalem's holy sites. Um, uh, there are 30 some sites there, all told. Um, if I'm not mistaken, um, uh, 17 of the sites are Christian sites, 15 are Jewish sites. There is one shared Jewish Muslim site, Temple Mount Haram al-Sharif in that order. I superimposed Al-Aqsa Mosque here because it did not appear. Um, this portends the morphing of a national political conflict with a religious dimension into a zero sum religious war. What will become of us? Now, a while back we decided to try and do something about this. Um, and I would like to share that with you. Um, we put together a database 
of all of the sacred, religious, and holy sites and heritage sites in and around the old city of Jerusalem. Um, Diana, could you put that last slide on? And this is what the real Jerusalem looks like. By the way, there are four great denominations, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and secular humanism. The Romans and the Jebusites are represented in our Jerusalem as well. They're part of our civilization. Uh, Mick, we came up with 670 sites. That's more than 300, but we count a bit differently. And we also included the heritage sites. I'm sure that there's not much daylight between the two of us. And what we have done is put together uh, a profile of each of these sites. Um, where is it? What's its significance? Who owns it? Which government protects it? With which other denominations is it associated? On what route of pilgrimage is it located? What days of the year are there special events? A mass, for example, or special prayer. Um, uh, what's its history, its architecture? What are the secondary sites located? You know, inside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the Ramashrif, the Temple Mount, there are dozens of secondary sites. Um, now, we're a bunch of secular Jews. So we have taken those profiles and have turned them over to fine Jewish, Muslim, uh, Christian uh, scholars to vet what we've written, correct it. This is about letting Jerusalem speak in your voice, not our voice. We now have pretty much completed that database. And the question is, what are we gonna do with this? Well, it's going to be a working tool for decision makers. It will be uh, eventually an interactive uh, website which will allow people to access their Jerusalem or the Jerusalem of others. I'm a Pravoslavic pilgrim, show me what my Jerusalem is. Or I know nothing about Islamic Jerusalem, show me what Jerusalem is. Um, but the most important thing at the moment is an attempt to turn this into a public initiative. Um, and because those who weaponize faith in Jerusalem are not representative of the historic religious establishments in the city. The churches, the chief rabbis, the heads of the Sharia courts, the Muslim clerics. They know that Jerusalem has to speak in multiple voices. And uh, what we are trying to do around this amazing image of Jerusalem, nobody can look at this map and say, we possess Jerusalem, only we. And we're trying to articulate the kinds of interactions that are necessary um, in order to allow Jerusalem to be Jerusalem. Uh, very briefly, no faith 
and no individual has a monopoly on the sanctity of Jerusalem. Uh, nobody needs to apologize for his or her attachment to the city of Jerusalem. No attachment, however powerful it is, justifies changing the status quo, which can only be changed, if at all, by agreement. Nobody is required to believe in the veracity of somebody else's faith. I don't have to believe that Muhammad ascended to heaven or uh, in the resurrection, but I do have to believe that people of faith believe that and to be respectful of it. And at times, we all will be custodians of each other's sanctity. Nobody is entitled to deny or to denigrate the attachment of anybody else. Our scholars went through, the, they could write whatever they want on the significance of their holy site to them, but not to comment on or denigrate the attachment of somebody else. Um, this final point is probably the most important because these materials are easily abused and they're being abused now. Jerusalem is not only being threatened by zealotry, it's being threatened by kitsch. Um, we now have an Abrahamic covenant and Muslims can visit the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Occupation or occupation? This could be used as a cover who needs, look, look how wonderful things are. You have freedom of religion. No. In God's Jerusalem, no person and no community, national or religious, needs struggle to maintain his or her identity or the identity of his or her community or the integrity of its sacred sites. That is unthinkable. And we have been working with um, some of the residents in Jerusalem, some of the religious leaders uh, and uh, others abroad. This is an attempt to marginalize the religious pyromaniacs who are controlling the discourse by offering a faith-based alternative. This is not an interfaith in the classic sense of the word. This doesn't deal with making conflicting or differing theologies more compatible. It's the cohabitation of contradictory narratives. Um, for the past decades, including in recent days, uh, faith has been abused in the service of denial and violence and some of the most horrible crimes of the 20th and 21st centuries have been done in the name of faith. Um, what we see here is a potential for religion to have a positive impact on the nature of relations in Jerusalem. This is not an alternative 
to a political process. This will not end occupation, but it will in the absence of a political process offer the prospect of a modest improvement of mutual respect, something that's stabilizing in Jerusalem uh, and something that we've lost. It's also an example, I think an excellent one in which faith can have a highly positive impact on issues of major geopolitical importance. Thank you. Danny, thank you very much indeed for that introduction. Uh, one or two people in the chat box were asking uh, what you meant by when you said we, and I think you were talking about terrestrial Jerusalem. Is that right? It's, ter it's terrestrial Jerusalem and a bunch of, the, the term was once in the communist era, fellow travelers. We have allies in churches. We have uh, shared this um, in the, royal court in Morocco. Um, we have met with uh, local community leaders, uh, Palestinian in East Jerusalem, both Christian and Muslim. And we are trying to quietly build a coalition so that this will receive the prominence uh, that it deserves. Good, thank you. Let, let's now turn to our panelists. Uh, each of whom will speak for ab about 10 minutes. Uh, Jeremy, if I could come to you first of all. Uh, rabbi Jeremy Gordon is the rabbi at uh, New London Synagogue. He spent three years of his life in Jerusalem and he's got family living there at the moment. Jeremy, give us a, a Jewish perspective, if you will, on the city and what it means for you. Bishop, thank you. Um, uh, just an honour to be part of this conversation. Um, what I'm going to try and do is unpack a uh, profoundly Jewish, profoundly religious, but non-monopolising sense of Jerusalem. Um, I want to take people on a journey through what Jerusalem has meant through time. Um, I'm actually going to spend quite a bit of time back in the Bible, but where I'm, I'm headed to is a place where we can do what I think the Balfour Project is trying to do, um, and do that from a profoundly Jewish place. I'm not a uh, I'm not a right winger. I'm not a fundamentalist. But I mean, I agree with Danny that, that the religious voice is important. But I think often massively misunderstood. So I've collected a bunch of you know really really key uh, uh, texts which are, are completely important in a Jewish conception. I mean, you can't argue with as it were the Book of Genesis. Um, so when we talk about Jerusalem as Jews, we tend to begin with this verse in chapter 14 of the book of Genesis with King Melchizedek of Shalem. And you may hear in the word Yerushalayim, as we would say it in Hebrew or Jerusalem, that word Shalem or Salem that is in there, a sense of peace. Now, interestingly enough, he, this king who is who is held to come from Jerusalem, he's not a Jewish progenitor. He's not a Hebrew. He's actually I mean, he's 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 held to be a righteous other. Um, and he comes from Shalem. Um, moving slightly forward in the book of Genesis, this is part of the narrative of the binding of Isaac. Genesis, sorry, this is not the binding of Isaac, this is slightly before then. But um, Abraham calls a place Adonai Yireh. And again, you'll hear in the calling of Yireh, the other part of the word Yireh Shalem or Yerushalayim or Jerusalem. And 
in the rabbinic imagination, the word Jerusalem comes from this combination of the shalem of this non-Jewish, non-Hebrew, other, as it were, King Melchizedek, and this calling from uh, of, of Abraham. And I will, I'll kind of, I'll, I'll say a little bit about more more about that at the end of my at the end of my time. Here's the verses. Uh, here are some verses from the story of the binding of Isaac. It's such an important story Jerus uh, Jewishly. It's about a kind of a grounding of where the Jewish claim comes from. Look what Abraham was willing and able to do. Therefore, God, you should allow us and so on. And so the sort of it's at the heart of the of the religious claim that Danny talked about, a dangerous religious claim, but certainly one that I think needs to be engaged in. And here there is a question of this Mount Moriah. Um, and you may hear in Maria, you may hear that Yira sound that we were talking about before. And God says, this will be in a place that I will show you. Um, and rabbinically, and when I'm citing Russia, I'm talking about the single most important Jewish commentator that exists uh, in, in, in the Jewish community, that Russia identifies this land of Moriah as Jerusalem. Why does he identify it? Because of a verse in the book of Chronicles that says, that the house of the Lord, this is the temple, I'll come on to that, is built in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. In other words, Mount Moriah, the place of the uh, attempted sacrifice of Isaac, is held to be where Jerusalem comes from. Um, why is uh, Mount Moriah held to be to do with the temple? Because in the temple they offered myrrh or more. So Moriah is sort of held rabbinically in the biblical imagination to be the sort of the origin of this term. So all of this is existing before anybody's built anything. You know, there is no city, there's no temple. This is all kind of pre, pre, pre any of all of that. By the time we get into the book of Deuteronomy, we get lots of conversations about this very, very important place for the Hebrews. It becomes a very important place for the Jews. We're called to go there three times a year on the fast of Passover, on the fast of Pentecost or Shavuot, and on the fast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. And that place is the place that God will choose. And later we identify and we sort of lock that place in with the geographical area that nowadays, you know, you will see on maps look called Jerusalem. This is the very first biblical mention of Jerusalem. You'll notice, of course, that none of the verses that I've talked about previously actually talk about Jerusalem. We've had bits of words that, uh, that need to be sort of portmanteaued, stuck together to get to Jerusalem. But this is the very first mention. It's in the book of Joshua, um, which occurs after Moses dies and the children of Israel cross the Jordan River into, as it were, the promised land. And we come across this city known as Yerushalayim. Um, and interestingly enough, it doesn't belong originally to the Hebrews, to the Israelite nation, to the people of, uh, you know, that Joshua is leading, the people who left Egypt. Um, it belongs to this other king. And this other king gets in a kind of a negotiation. He's got a problem with the Gibeonites or another nation who are around and it doesn't go well for them. And that whole area ends up being conquered by Joshua. But it's just fascinating to me in the context of the very point that Daniel is talking about, which I would completely go along with, which, you know, is part of the heart of the Balfour project. It's not correct that the origin of Jerusalem is Hebrew or Jewish. It's correct that there is an origin which exists in the kind of roiling interplay of ancient peoples, all kind of like bumping up against one another. And what does that mean for the future? What does that mean for where we are today? I'll get onto that. But I just want to sort of um, undo biblically 
uh, a sense that that Jerusalem always was and therefore always must be held within the kind of the covenant of, of the people of Abraham. Joshua dies several generations later, a temple is built and the temple is built in this place and exactly what that place was we think is Jerusalem but it's very difficult to kind of work out what's going on archaeologically you'll get kind of people kind of drawing up images like that but when you talk to archaeologists and they start trying to explain this stone or that stone or this area or that area it gets incredibly complicated it's very difficult to work out what's going on because we're dealing with things that are happening 3,000 years ago on top of which layer after layer after layer of building and rebuilding is going on and I don't think you can kind of like you can't get to or at least I've been unable to get to what I would consider real archaeology free of the kind of the political pulls that Danny has been defining. But the temple is built, um, you know, rough time of the, of the building of the temple, minus a thousand, a thousand BCE, as I would call it as a Jew, before the common era or a thousand BC for those who are counting things before Christ. But it doesn't go so well. And, and this is the sort of image of Jerusalem that you will find in the great prophetic works of those of us who kind of hold the Hebrew Bible as important. Um, Jeremiah here, just before the destruction of the first temple in minus 356, 356 BCE, talking about going out and looking around the streets of Jerusalem and finding nobody of any use whatsoever. Um, and then after the destruction of the first temple, you start to get verses like this appearing in biblical books like Psalms, like um, Ecclesiastes, these great kind of poetic images of, oh, wasn't it extraordinary? Wasn't Jerusalem, you know, astounding? And this, fascinatingly, this is a verse which is always sung at Jewish weddings. So at a wedding, at a time of great joy, of great happiness, this song will be sung, this verse will be sung, if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither, let my tongue stick to my palate if I cease to think of you. Which is to say that even after the destruction of the first temple, let alone the second temple, even after the destruction of the temple in minus three, five, six, Jerusalem lives in the sort of religious imagination incredibly importantly. And you get people kind of hungering and lusting after Jerusalem and yearning towards Jerusalem and seeking to return. And um, perhaps the best example of that comes in the 12th century. Yehuda Halevi is possibly the greatest poet and um, philosopher philosophical poet of the Jewish people, an incredibly important character. Um, and he decides to make a pilgrimage. He decides he wants to go to Israel to die in this land that he believed was his. And this is a poem that he wrote 1140, just before he set sail on his way to Jerusalem. Your bride, he's talking about himself, is coming to meet you. He's talking about Jerusalem, longing, heartsick, since the day she was first barred from visiting your sanctuary. That's a reference to the destruction of the first temple. Each time of pilgrimage, Passover, Tabernacles, uh, Pentecost, she gazes, that should be gazes, not glazes, I apologize, shamefacedly at the strangers who have made the journey. And there's the reference to 1140 Christians, Muslims. 1140 precisely is a time of Christian control of Jerusalem, although obviously that's moving backwards and forwards during the crusader period, who've made the journey while she's not. She stands far off in all her places of exile. Yehuda Halevi is writing from Spain, sending prayers towards Israel instead of sacrifices. And he feels that pull and he decides he's going to travel to the land of Israel. I'm, uh, I'm going to have to skip a couple of things just to move on to a more, much more recent um, poet 
and pilgrim and a person who felt a great tug towards Jerusalem. He's expressing these ideas religiously, but Yehuda Amichai is like Danny, a secular Jew. There's a sort of a nationalist connection to the land of Israel. Yehuda Amichai was born Ludwig Pfeffer, moved to Jerusalem as a child. But the name that he chose for himself when he arrived in Israel, Yehuda means Jew and Amichai means my people live. So you can feel that kind of pull. But listen how he talks about Yerushalayim. Just one other point about Yerushalayim. Words that end ayim in Hebrew are words that come in pairs. One yad, two yadayim. Two legs, regel, reglayim. So Yerushalayim sounds like a paired word. He says, why is Jerusalem always in twos? One above, one below. I want to live in Jerusalem of the middle without turning my head above and without wounding my heads below. Why is Jerusalem in the language of pairs like hands and legs? I only want to be in one Jerusalem because I'm one and there is no more. What he's talking about, I think, is a religious imagination of a city that cannot be. And he acknowledges the city of his imagination that cannot be. There is in the imagination of Jews a beautiful, a perfect, a peaceful and a Jerusalem which has no pull one way and the other way. And then there is the lived reality. Actually, Daniel's organization, its very name is a reference to this idea which exists in the Talmud. I haven't got time to do it. But just to sort of reground this idea that there is a Jerusalem which is held in a kind of attention. And in fact, much of the joy of Jerusalem for me is the creative ambiguity of the pulls of how Jerusalem is constructed religiously as well as as a lived political reality, as Danny just explained so beautifully. You can see it in this, for me, incredibly important, key religious text, religious text from the fourth, fifth century of the common era. And it's an absolutely core religious text, says this. Abraham called this place Yireh. We saw that before. And Melchizedek called this place Shalem, or you know, he's, he's identified as coming from Shalem. And so what does God do? God says, if I call it Yireh, as Abraham called it, then Shem, who was a righteous man, this non-Jew, this non-Hebrew, will become angry. But if I call it Shalem, Abraham, who was a righteous man, will be angry. Instead, I call it Yerushalayim, and it shall be called together Yireh, Shalem, Yerushalayim. And the bit you just need to sort of like fold into that is that pairedness. And here it's God calling this, right? This isn't some human being decided I'm pulling it this way and I'm pulling it this way. It's as it were a rabbinic imagination where God takes this pulled city and honors the pulls by having its very name itself be partly a pull in one direction, partly a pull in another, and together a sense of plurality that we don't hear enough, certainly religious Jews say loudly enough. Um, but it is, I think, you know, an absolutely, as it were, kosher position, it's one I hold, um, and it's part of what draws me to this panel today. Thank you. Jeremy, thank you very much for that and, and, and for the, the feeling behind it. Uh, our next panelist is uh, Imam Monawar Hussein, who is the Muslim tutor at Eton College, Muslim chaplain to the Oxford University Hospitals F <clears throat> Foundation Trust, and founder of the Oxford Foundation, which uh, promotes uh, religious and racial harmony, particularly amongst young people. Uh, and in 2017, Monawar was made an MBE uh, in recognition of his interfaith work. So welcome to you, and uh, we look forward to your contribution.
we seem to be having some technical problems there. Uh, Monoa, can you hear me? If not, we'll, we'll go to Bishop Christopher, if we may, um, who is our third and uh, final panelist. Um, uh, Christopher has been the Anglican Bishop of Southwark uh, since 2011. He's a member of the House of Lords, where he's currently the, the lead bishop uh, for international affairs. He's a trustee of the Belfort Project and also a member of the Holy Land Coordination established by the Vatican. So, Christopher, over to you. And you need to unmute yourself. Yes, thank you very much, Bishop Michael. This year, I made two visits to Jerusalem before the lockdown. In January, as an Anglican participant in the Vatican-mandated coordination of Catholic bishops, which engages relationally with Christian communities in the Holy Land. Of course, they are a small minority of the much greater population. And in early March, leading an ecumenical pilgrimage. I realized in preparing for today that I spend more time in Jerusalem than in any other city in England, other than London. And to talk about Christianity and Jerusalem, I want to focus on place, people, and pilgrimage. To understand how the Christian imagination about Jerusalem has been shaped, it is helpful to think about something like the Mappa Mundi, that great example of medieval cartography from the 13th century, now in the custody of Hereford Cathedral. Jerusalem is located on the center um, at the center of the world. This was not just a description of how to move from one place to another. It was about identity, mindset, and understanding. It is not an 800-year-old satnav. It is a description of what matters and its place in the cosmos. It tells us not only about physical features and in pictorial form something about them, but of their relative significance. So while England, is positioned somewhere off the northwest at the edge of the known world, much as we are determined to be again, Jerusalem can only be at the center. The rest of the map is drawn around the centrifugal fact, however inconvenient that is for topography. This is not principally a statement about size, commercial or military importance, such as it might have been for Paris, Frankfurt, Constantinople, Cordoba or Baghdad in that day. It is rather a statement about God's plan for the world he has made. The Mappa Mundi depicts the Holy Sepulchre, the Church of the Resurrection at Jerusalem, and as such gives the beholder a worldview, a worldview shared by whole peoples about redemptive history, the vast majority of which would never see or visit Jerusalem but they knew with utter certainty of belief it was central to their own story. And so Jerusalem and people, often referred to by Christians as the living stones, among the very stones in the land where the scriptures of the Jewish and Christian faiths emerged, not called the Holy Land for nothing. When the Emperor Constantine's mother Helena arrived in Palestine in 326, seeking to identify the holy sites associated with the birth, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. She commissioned what amounted to the first ever archaeological digs. 
It is to this activity that we owe the sites of the Church of the Nativity and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre preeminently. In order to identify where to dig, it was to the local Christians she turned and to what had been handed down already through a number of generations. And who were they? They were among their number new converts, certainly, but principally they were descendants of the earliest Christians who have preserved a tradition of where the gospel events happened. Those holy sites have been both a source of pilgrimage as well as religious and political concern ever since. But words alone will not do justice to the part they have played and continue to play in the Christian story. That they remain places of living worship and witness, especially for their indigenous communities, is key. The leaders of the churches in Jerusalem cooperate together ecumenically, particularly in their advocacy for the Christian holy sites, and can rely on the solidarity of Christians and their churches worldwide, of course in much, much larger numbers, and sometimes with much greater political clout. Again, some Christians are recent arrivals, but many are the descendants of those who were there in Helena's time, descended from Jews, Samaritans, Greeks, Arabs, and Syrians, from the time of antiquity and preserving the languages of the ancient world in their liturgies, Coptic, Syriac, Aramaic, Amharic, Greek, and the Latin rites. They are indigenous populations and the churches of the now largely secularized West are derivative of the apostolic mission sent out from Jerusalem, not to mention Antioch, where the term Christian was first used, and not the other way round as sometimes is mistakenly thought. And so Jerusalem and pilgrimage to the place where the central redemptive facts of the Christian place took place amongst the descendants of those first Christians has been the practice of centuries. The first person to give account of pilgrimage is Igeria, a woman who made her pilgrimage later in the fourth century in the 380s. We have been coming back ever since. It is the place we act out the redemptive drama that wrought our salvation. I'm using we here because um, I was asked to speak from a Christian perspective. It was, and much of the ancient part of the city still is a walled city. The walls were built for defense, but they also contain communities of the Muslim, Jewish, Armenian, and Christian quarters, all held within. I know I'm stating the obvious to many people much more learned and knowledgeable about Jerusalem than me, but this is a telling fact. I am one of those who believes that it is the destiny of the holy city to be the point of reconciliation between Jews, Christians and Muslims. So I was interested in the description of those tectonic plaints and irreconcilable narratives, perhaps. Pope John Paul II wrote this, Jews ardently love Jerusalem and in every age venerate her memory, abundant as she is in remains and monuments from the time of David, who chose her as the capital, and Solomon, who built the temple there. They turn their minds to her daily and point to her as the sign of the nation. Christians honor her with a religious and intent concern because there the words of Christ so often resounded. There the great events of redemption were accomplished, the passion, death, and resurrection of the Lord. In the city of Jerusalem, the first Christian community sprang up and remained throughout the centuries, a continual ecclesial presence 
despite difficulties. Muslim Pope John II continues, also called Jerusalem holy, with a profound attachment that goes back to the origins of Islam and springs from the fact that there have been many special places of pilgrimage and for more than a thousand years have dwelt there almost without interruption. Sadly, the context of our conference today is that the present reality in Jerusalem is one of conflict. Among Israeli citizens, there are claims of discrimination by those who are non-Jews. For the residents of East Jerusalem, it is a tale of encroaching settlements, restrictions on movement, restrictions on bringing in spouses and families, if not an Israeli citizen. The churches, especially the Greek Orthodox Church, have been involved in significant disputes over property title and ownership in recent years. The proximity of the separation barrier and what that represents, not simply in terms of security, but also of restricting the Palestinian population and separating off the West Bank is acutely obvious. For Palestinian Christians on the Palestinian side of the separation barrier, the restrictions on movement and access to the holy sites in Jerusalem are acutely felt at the major festivals. Jerusalem has in recent decades been the place of tension, protest, and even violence as the settled decision of the State of Israel has not been the settled decision of Jerusalem's residents or the neighboring population. In seeking justice for all, we must embrace that wider vision of a city whose destiny is to be the point of reconciliation, not a source of contention. And so in conclusion, the image of Jerusalem continues to inspire. A portentous moment to recall at the gathering, I know, but when General Allenby entered Jerusalem on the 11th of December, 1917, he did so via the Jaffa Gate on foot, out of respect for all that Jerusalem meant. When Clement Attlee sought to capture a post-war future for Britain, which was full of hope and possibility, his vision was a secular one, but he chose Blake's imagery of a new Jerusalem for peace, justice, and human flourishing in this country. The same phrasing has even been picked up by the present Conservative Prime Minister for our future hope as a nation. Yet for Christians, Jerusalem is that potent symbol of hope for the future, pointing toward the heavenly Jerusalem of Revelation 21. According to the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. For Christians worldwide, Jerusalem is a symbol of the hope to come, not a contest to be won, still less a battle to be fought. For Jerusalemite Christians, there remain hard realities, hence our conference today, and why organizations like the Balfour Project concentrate minds on these hard realities. Thank you. Michael, you're muted. <clears throat> Monoa, uh, we, we lost you for a while, but I think you're back with us now. And uh, we will uh, hope that uh, you stay with us. And uh, we look forward now to your contribution. Thank you. I, I, I do apologize. Uh, I've been having some internet issues. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Peace be upon you all. Uh, it's a real uh, pleasure to be with you. Um, 
and, and thank you very much for, uh, for inviting me. Uh, the primary sources of Islam uh, are the Quran, which for Muslims uh, is literally the word of God, and Hadith, which contain the sayings and actions that is the lived example of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. I will employ both primary sources to explore the significance of Jerusalem in Islam. Uh, the Quran as the, word, as the word of God is inexhaustible. Uh, Muslims have therefore engaged deeply with the divine word throughout their history and have, and have produced a huge corpus of commentaries, linguistic, traditional, rational, mystical and scientific. Some focus just on one methodology, others a combination of these methodologies to articulate the depth of meaning in each word or verse of the Quran. In an important study entitled Jerusalem in the Quran, Al-Hatib argues that there are some 70 direct or indirect references to Jerusalem in the Quran. In, in, and, and these are scattered throughout 21 chapters. I note this because often the Quran alludes to a point and the elucidation comes through the prophetic hadith or the corpus of commentaries or both. This point is articulated by Muqatil ibn Sulaiman um, from the eighth century, a leading Quran commentator. In relation to Jerusalem, he states, when almighty God says, but we delivered him, Abraham and his nephew, Lut, and directed them to the land which we have blessed for all beings, he means Jerusalem. When he says, and we made a covenant with you on the right side of Mount Sinai, he means Jerusalem. When he says, and we made the son of Mary and his mother a sign, we gave them both shelter and high ground, affording rest and security and furnished with water springs. It is Jerusalem. When he says, glory to God, who did take his servant for a nocturnal journey from the sacred mosque to the father's mosque, it is Jerusalem. When he says, in houses which God hath permitted to be raised and his name to be commemorated therein, therein glorifying him in the mornings and the evenings, are men whom I, neither commerce nor trafficking diverts from the remembrance of God. It means the sacred house, that is Jerusalem. Jerusalem, also known as Al-Quds or Beit al-Maqdis or Al-Haram al-Sharif, is inextricably intertwined with the Islamic tradition. Al-Kilani has articulated the outlook that per permeates Muslim religious consciousness in relation to Jerusalem in the following words. There has been a general background of intimations shared by all Muslims. This background has comprised part of their religious consciousness, leading them all to yearn for Jerusalem and seek closeness to it, so as to derive blessings from its holy sites. This is why the companions of the Prophet, the successors and other pious Muslims, and indeed the Muslim rank and file as well, have come one after the other to visit Jerusalem. Yakut al-Hamawi, from the 13th century has provided a graphic illustration of the place Jerusalem occupies in Muslim religious consciousness. The word muqaddas, he says, means purified, the meaning of glorify your holy name. 
is that we, pur we purify ourselves for you. Hence comes the name Beitel Maktis, that is the purified home through which people purify themselves of their sins. Jerusalem is one of the three most holiest of sites within Islam, the other two being uh, in Mecca and Medina. It is also home to one of the only two mosques named in the Quran, that is Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa and the other being Al-Masjid Al-Haram in Mecca. The verse explicitly mentioning the two also captures a momentous moment in the life of the Prophet, that of his corp corporeal night journey accompanied by Gabriel transporting him via the white heavenly steed from Mecca to Jerusalem. The Quran states, glorified be he who took his slave for a journey by night from Al-Masjid Al-Haram to Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa, the neighborhood whereof we have blessed that we might show him of our signs. Lo, he, only he is the hearer and the seer. On the journey from Mecca, Gabriel invited the prophet to, to dismount and pray at certain places. These sacred places were Mount Sinai, the birthplace of Jesus upon him be peace in Bethlehem, and then the grave of Moses upon him be peace, which the prophet describes was a stone's throw from the sacred land below the red sand hill. In Islamic doctrine, the fact that the prophet prayed at certain places is understood to denote the blessedness of places associated with the prophets and by extension, the saints. Muslims therefore consider all such places were, are, and shall until the day of resurrection remain holy in Islam. What struck me early this year during a study tour of the Holy Land organized by St. George's College Jerusalem was the shared experience between Christians, Jews and Muslims of the blessedness of the holy sites we visited. As the last of the Abrahamic faiths, each place we visited had deep holy resonance to me as a Muslim. With reference to the verse I quoted above, the Quranic commentators have interpreted neighborhood whereof we have blessed Barak Nahaulahu as meaning the entire land of Al-Sham, that is historical Syria. It appears in a hadith that God has made the land from the Arsh, that is the divine throne, to the, river, to the river Euphrates. And out of this, he has bestowed particular holiness on the land of Palestine, Palestine. The blessedness in the Quranic verse is interpreted as referring to religious and worldly blessings. As for religious blessings, it has been the Qibla, that is the direction of prayer of all past prophets and their home and the last resting place. The Dome of the Rock is a sacred place from which the Prophet ascended to the heavens and it is during this night that the five daily prayers were made obligatory on the nascent Muslim community. Jerusalem was their first Qibla, that is their first direction of prayer. It is the second mosque built on earth some 40 years after the Kaaba in Mecca. The Prophet said, there is no journeying except to three mosques. Al-Masjid al-Haram in Mecca, the Mosque of Al-Aqsa in, in Jerusalem, and my mosque in Medina. As a result of uh, this, it was the custom of many pilgrims on the Hajj to visit Jerusalem 
at the conclusion of the Hajj. In another tradition, the Prophet encouraged pilgrims on the Hajj to begin their journey from Jerusalem. He said, he who begins Hajj or Umrah from the Aqsa Mosque to the Makkah Mosque will be forgiven his previous sins. So for some, the beginning and the end of the blessed Hajj journey was Jerusalem. Another prophetic tradition states, whoever dies in Jerusalem, it is as though he has died in the heavens. Not unrelated to this virtue of Jerusalem was the Quranic commentator's interpretation of the verse, and listen on the day when the caller calls out from a place that is near, uh, chapter 50, verse 41, as referring to the final trumpet blast by the archangel Israfil or Seraphil, when he calls out from a place that is near to the heaven, this is the rock of the holy house of Jerusalem, the place on earth that is the nearest to the heaven. As a consequence, some solely travel to Jerusalem to live, pray, and die there. There are numerous individuals, some towering figures within Islamic history, ordinary folk of whom history is silent, all loved Jerusalem for its blessedness, spending their lives in prayer, meditation, and in the hope that they might be buried in that holy land. Now, as the subtitle of the conference suggests, a vision of a shared future in the Holy Land, I'd like to conclude with my personal experience on my visit to Jerusalem early this year. I had the most spiritually uplifting time of my life in Jerusalem. I had the honor of attending a Sabbath service at a synagogue, followed by our group of Christians, Jews and Muslims, being hosted by a local Jewish family who opened up their hearts and home to us. It was the most moving experience. Likewise, the experience of Arab hospitality was equaled, reminding me, reminding me of the stories of Abraham's hospitality that I'd grown up with. The feeling of praying and spending time in the Al-Haram al-Sharif, the noble sanctuary, left enduring sense of deep peace and tranquility within me. My abiding memory though, will be of praying together at the tomb of the prophet David with a young Jewish man. Having had a negative experience in Hebron, I was a little hesitant when I arrived at the tomb of David. However, the young man noticing that looked at me and made a gesture as if to say, come closer. So there we were, complete strangers, united in our love for prophet David, praying in our own ways, in our own languages and reciting our holy scriptures, offering our prayers and moving on. As we moved away, the young Jewish man asked, where I was from? I said, Britannia. We shook hands and went our ways. It is time to channel that love, that love we embody as Muslims, Christian Jews for the Holy Land into a transformative love, a love that honors the other, a love that heals and reconciles and a love that recognizes the sacredness of our common humanity. That is what will lead to peace in this blessed land. Thank you very much. Thank you very much uh, for uh, giving us that perspective and, and also that message at the end. Uh, we have some few minutes uh, for some uh, discussion uh, between uh, those of you on the panel. Um, 
Danny, could I start by coming back to you and asking you whether you've got a comment on anything you've heard from the other three? I'll take a pass. <laughs> He's passing, Michael. Maybe you want to pass it on to someone uh, else. <laughs> oh, okay, sorry. Uh, well, to uh, our other three, would one of you like to chip in? Jeremy. I just, you know, an honour to be here. I'm Bishop Christopher and Imam Manawa. Just, uh, you know, thank you for sharing so honestly and, and, and movingly about a kind of a shared vision. I've been keeping an eye on the chat box. And, um, you know, one of the questions that, that, that one of the sort of the themes of the chat is, yes, 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 yes. Fine to have such kind of nice uh, expressions expressed. What does it mean politically? You know, a, a question from uh, someone with a, with an Arabic sounding name. You know, so where should the next temple be built? Or, you know, you know, what should be the answer to this, you know, perhaps uh, military atrocity or terrorist atrocity or and, and I, 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 I wonder, Imam, I wonder, Bishop, how do we join the link between our kind of our shared uh, religious perspectives and the very, very difficult political job that needs to happen of putting lines down in reality? I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know if either of you have a, a, a thought on that. I, I, my, my own personal view would be that people need to actually talk to each other. You know, there have to be spaces where people meet each other, speak with each other, and recognize that we all have same aspirations. Um, we, we all have same aspirations for ourselves, for our families, for our children, and, and to build a future together. I, I think when people are not talking to each other, there is great room for uh, ignorance of the other. There's great room for uh, all kinds of stereotyping and so on. So just people initially meeting each other, you know, it doesn't have to be about religion. It could be about anything, but just meet each other. I mean, one of the things, uh, wonderful things is sports, you know, to, just uh, an opportunity for young people to meet each other playing sports, but just to recognize each other's humanity. I think that's that has to be a starting point. I agree. I think that's certainly part of it, Imam Monawa. And Rabbi Jeremy, I too have been keeping a look at the chat box. And <laughs> so have I. <laughs> by the comment about learning from our history. Because I think as well as the talking <coughs> and as well as the dreaming and the visions that we have that inspire us all from our different faith traditions and perspectives, uh, learning from the history is very telling, especially as the person who put that down linked it to what makes then for peaceful solutions and coexistence. And it seems that there, that, that there is a, an imperative that, that we should be seeking peaceful solutions and coexistence. I'm not sure I am competent uh, to make political uh, statements about what would work politically, although I remain um, committed to, but, but I realize I'm doing this from a detached position. And I was very struck by R.V. Scheim at the beginning um, but, 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 but by his wisdom and experience. But I remain committed to the two-state solution because that does preserve some of the balances, uh, some of the differences, and, uh, and, and, um, and protects uh, and would protect the, the, the legal identities of, of, of the two um, constituent peoples. 
I mean, for me, there's, I mean, there, there, there are two things that strike me. I, 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 I agree, Imam, about speaking to one another. I wonder if there's something about seeing one another. You know, the great, the great Jewish uh, philosopher, French philosopher, Emmanuel Levinas, talked about that when you see someone, like it, it impacts upon you. I wonder the implication for that Jewish gentleman, Imam, that you were talking about meeting in the tomb of David, seeing like a devout, a serious and a peace-loving and open-souled Muslim person praying next to him. Like, I think those kinds of things are incredibly important. I mean, I understand why security forces make decisions to erect walls and barriers, but it is heartbreaking. You know, that you can. I mean, you know, when I was living in Jerusalem, I would, you know, get up in the morning, go to where I was studying, you know, go to the shops, go back, this, that and the other. And the only Muslims that I would see were doing menial labours, you know, the, the cleaners, some of the people in the shops. Like I didn't get the, you know, the Jerusalem that I lived in was a Jerusalem full of Jews and that I had to sort of physically go out and make an effort to go into East Jerusalem to, to, to encounter, um, you know, Muslim people. And I think that 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 we need to we need to see one another and we i think we also need to train ourselves that peace doesn't always i don't know i think we have the wrong word in in in, in uh, with peace I, mean, I i don't i don't know what to do with it peace sort of suggests to me a kind of everybody bouncing happily on some you know beautiful island free of any concerns and it's not going to be like that in jerusalem instead it's going to be about kind of a coming to terms with polarities and ambiguities and, and, and accepting, you know, non-monopolistic control. We need to work out how to suffer one another, you know, tolerate one another in love. And I, I, I wonder if that's a better goal. I, I, I agree with you. I, I think that peace can become a very idealized linguistic term, which is why I tend wherever I can to combine it with peace, not and justice, but peace with justice. And then there's a commitment to think about the justice for all, uh, without which there cannot be peace other than idealized uh, conceptual concept. I, I, I would just add, sorry, sorry Billy. <clears throat> uh, if I may weigh in, um, I, I wanna speak on, on behalf of the city because the interactions that I see on the ground are very different from coexistence. Uh, one of the most illuminating places for me in Jerusalem is the fourth station of the cross, which is <clears throat> at the beginning of Al-Wad Street. It's illuminating because you stand there for 15 minutes um, and you will see Christian pilgrims bearing the cross um, along the Via Dolorosa. You'll see Jewish worshipers uh, um, going from Mea Sharim or Beit Yisrael to the Western Wall and, and Muslim worshipers, and then you'll have the Border Patrol. Um, it is difficult for me to describe, on the one hand, the visceral hatred that you find in the interactions between Jews and Muslims on the Temple Mount al-Sharif. There will be blood. We're on a trajectory of radicalization. Um, and we don't have a monopoly. Go to the roof of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and look at the relations between the Copts and the Ethiopians. And there are times when Orthodox and Latins, which is why I at least uh, speak of the cohabitation of incompatible narratives. 
it, 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 I say this with, with deep regret. Look, uh, I only found out about this a few years ago. Um, I, I'm sure the Imam is going to get a chuckle out of this. On, at the end of Ramadan, Laylat uh, al-Qadr, uh, where the, the celebration of the letters of the Quran descending from heaven. There are half a million worshipers on Haram al-Sharif. It's amazing. Do you think any of my Israeli neighbors are aware of it? We lead separate lives. And when our lives intersect, these are not the lives of coexistence as it is understood in the West. And that's why it's imperative. You know, I only know of one photograph in which, actually I can think of another, but one in which you have all of the heads of churches, the Muslim leaders and the two chief rabbis appeared on the front page of the New York Times. It was their getting together to protest the gay pride parade in Jerusalem. That's what coexistence looks in Jerusalem. I say it with regret. No, I am not capitulating to this. And I think that Jerusalem has more hidden veins and arteries that connect people than meets the eye. I can tell you that one of a dear friend um, one of the most senior Christian clerics in Jerusalem, somebody you all know, who has told me I periodically meet with this very senior rabbi, uh, but I'm not allowed to reveal it to anybody. Um, I'm not doing this to rain on your parade. You know, I, I, uh, I, I share uh, what you are looking for. Um, I uh, seek the possibilities, um, but I don't want us to forget just what a tough town Jerusalem is. It's a really tough town. Well, I, I think if I can just be a bit more hopeful, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, my experience really uh, was a very positive one uh, when, when I went. I mean, I'd, I'd been told that it would be very difficult at the airport and so on, and I had no issues going in and coming out. Uh, but it was, it was just, you know, just recognizing that there are good people everywhere. And it's just finding them and building alliances and working with them. And, 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 and really, if you think about it, what's the future otherwise? You know, the future doesn't look so bright if two people are not talking to each other, uh, 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 you know, there's antagonism and so on. And that's why I talk about reconciliation and actually some form of healing. And, and it might look as if, you know, it's very bleak right now, but all it takes is a few leaders. Uh, and there are some who are working very hard uh, for, for peace and for people to meet each other and to build uh, relationships of, of trust. Um, and I think, you know, you're an inspiration yourself, Danny. And there are many uh, others like you. May I have short intervention here? Yes. Um, in 1948, you know, I, I, I stand a lot 
on top of the Mount of Olives overlooking the mountain. Had I stood there in 1948, there would have been 31,000 Christians in Jerusalem. That would be at roughly 20% of the population. Today, there are on the order of 12,000, 13,000, less than 2% of the population. And the Christian communities are not being targeted by bad Zionists or by Islamists. The Christian community is being crushed by this conflict. Um, and, and I look at that with deep, deep, deep concern. Um, uh, Christianity is not going to disappear in Jerusalem, of course not. But there is the threat that it can turn into a museum piece rather than a community living and testifying, drawing its roots back to the time of Jesus as testimony to the life and death of Jesus. I'm saying this because I think that there is a direct correlation between our discussion this morning on occupation and our discussion on the possibility of coexistence in Jerusalem among the religions. The two are intimately related. Um, occupation among else is violating the sanctity of the Holy Land and violating the sanctity of its communities. And Jerusalem will really begin to heal. And I also mean in its faith dimension when occupation ends, which means that ending occupation is also a religious imperative. Thank you. In, in the couple of minutes left, I, I want to raise another issue. And I, I've noticed one or two uh, comments in, in this direction in the chat box. Um, and it's a large issue, and I'm probably going to put it to Christopher. I apologize for this. Um, but one of one of the important aspects at the moment, not least in terms of the, the of, of, of American politics and indeed the presidential election, is the role that Christian conservatives are playing uh, from there around these issues. Could you do just a quick comment on that, please? It's a real issue because of alliances, support, funding, um, global tectonic movements. And, and it's a real issue in the American election. And uh, Bishop Michael Curry, uh, the, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church in America, um, has, I think, summarized it brilliantly by saying that um, we, we, we should judge these actions by one simple question. Uh, do they look like love of neighbor? Um, if they do, then there is ground for a, a degree of um, dialogue. If they don't, we should vote and judge accordingly. And what about, just in a few seconds, Christian Zionism? Christian Zionism has been a, a, a very significant part of the story, especially in Jerusalem, going um, back into the 19th century, when, of course, uh, churches that, that were missions from Jerusalem originally were returning to Jerusalem. And um, although Christian Zionism, of course, has its focus on Jerusalem, um, I, I, I do not see that as mainstream for the, for, for, for the main churches. 
Thank you. Friends, we must wind up this session, uh, but first uh, let me say thank you very much to, to all four of you for taking part. I think that we have uh, shared a great deal of uh, affection from our different traditions for this city, and we've talked both about our hopes based on what we believe about, I pick up, peace with justice, but also recognised, and thank you, Danny, uh, some of the realities of uh, what we've done in the past and indeed the realities that do need to be faced head on at the present. Thank you very much for helping us to look at those things a little bit better this afternoon.